Amen. Uh, what a powerful worship service so far. It's so exciting. Uh, Grant, I don't know if you know it's exciting. I'm seeing people closer and closer to the front row, too, here. I don't know. Yeah. We're not as contagious anymore or something. I don't know. Don't, don't be bashful. We're friendly. So glad to see you guys moving slowly in. Uh, we're glad you are here. If you are here the first time or sixth time, whatever time it is, we're, we're going through the book of James, as you saw by that preview. And so you can start turning your Bible to the book of James, chapter 2 is where it will be. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one later. Maybe just for right now, you can go to just website, anywhere you look at BibleGateway.com. One, you can go and look at uh, a way to find and whatever translation you like as well. Uh, but we're continuing to the book of James. We're about the fifth week in. Hopefully it's been challenging for you. Uh, I've been challenging the church. I hope some of you are maybe doing this. If not, I encourage you to start this week of taking an opportunity to try once a week reading through the entire book of James. Uh, I've decided this week that I'm going to start reading it uh, several times a night. So I have a routine. After I tuck the girls in bed, I go and spend time reading. It takes me about 15 minutes to read the entire book. It's a short book. Uh, but I promise you, every time I read it, there's some different truth that kind of gets revealed to me. And seeing it all as a story across the way, understanding in context makes the story come more to life. And so I encourage you, just as a challenge, maybe a New Year, it's a little bit past New Year's, but you can start late, nothing wrong with that. I encourage you to jump on that. Um, so yeah, we're, we're continuing on. Um, last week I shared some stories with you that, uh, especially some very challenging things that me and my wife have been through, where we... Uh, Got into, it's kind of a joke, we got in a fight over about uh, me spraying raid on a pizza. If you don't know what that's about, you just have to go listen to it. And I did plead with you guys, ask you, hey, that's still an ongoing thing in our household, so don't bring it up. And so uh, first day on Monday, Grant walks in and goes, hey, so I hear about pizza and raid, right? And I'm like, gee, thanks a lot for bringing that up and stirring that up, but uh, no, all good. Uh, James, uh, we will be in James chapter 2. I want to share a story with you to kind of set this up, and it's a story I know I've told but hopefully it's still fresh to you guys. Um, when I was in high school, uh, Emily and my now wife have been married 16 years, and we dated all through high school. And uh, one of the things I remember doing with her is going to prom. It was actually a junior-senior banquet for Christian school, uh, CHA. Anyways, doesn't matter. Anyways, we went to this prom is what it was for their school. And, and after prom, they had an after-prom party with a bunch of Christian kids and stuff. And so we went to their house and just hung out, played card games and stuff like that, and just ate way too much food and whatnot. And we stayed out way later than we should have. And I remember driving home about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I'm, I'm exhausted. And I remember driving home, and I'm about a mile from my house, which is in Yukon, and I begin to fall asleep behind the wheel. I'm, I'm beginning to snooze behind the wheel. And, and so I'm swerving all over the place. And as I swerve, and I'm getting close, and I just want to get home, I look in the mirror, and I see some lights flashing in my rearview mirror. And I'm like, oh, no. My heart just drops, and if you don't know, it'll get your blood like adrenaline going. It's that right there. The cop pulls me over, and I'm just kind of in a fog. And he comes and shines the light in my eyes, and when I get really tired, my eyes get really bloodshot. And so he comes and looks at me, and he looks at my eyes, he's looking at me, and I'm kind of, I'm not really fully with it. And he says, uh, hey, you're swerving all the road back there. You know, what, what was going on? I said, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, we had prom tonight. went to an after-prom party and stuff. He goes, oh, Really? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it was a great time. You know, I'm just, I have no idea. He's like, do you have anything to drink? I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I did. He goes, really, what did you have? And I'm like, uh, Dr. Pepper, a couple of Mountain Dews. And he's like, don't get cute with me, boy. He's like, how much alcohol do you have? I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and he's like, you're obviously slurring your words. Your eyes are bloodshot. You're, you're swerving all over the road. I said, sir, it was a Christian party. He's like, oh, you don't think Christians drink? I'm like, I don't know, but I wasn't. And so I'm sitting here arguing with him, and he's debating whether or not to give me a field sobriety test right there. 
And I remember as a young kid just being so out of it. I said, sir, I'm so tired. I just want to go home. My house is right there. Would you just write me a ticket and my parents will take care of it tomorrow, which my, they would have not have. Uh, so, you know, and so that's what I'm going through right there. And instead, he gives me about a 30-minute lecture about being young and dumb and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, just let me go. And he lets me off. And then I, I go home and tell my parents the next day. And they didn't find it as funny as I did. Um, I tell you all that because he pulls me over, and, you know, looking back now and telling the story, everything I said, everything I acted, everything I did, the, the evidence would suppose make a strong case for him that I had been drinking. I mean, everything, my story, the way I was acting, the way I was behaving, the evidence was all there that would show that this kid's probably been drinking by, by how he's acting. If he gave me a field sobriety test, no one can blame him. Some of you guys probably right now are like, Eric, come on. I went up, no, I really wasn't drinking. I did what it happened. And, and so all that sort of stuff. I bring that up to talk about today what we're going to see in James as we walk through a very poignant passage in James where we look at is this. Let me just ask it like this, a rhetorical question that I don't want to put you on the spot, just to ask for yourself. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If a cop were to pull you over and said, listen, uh, we're, we're now arresting Christians and so many to take you in, would there be enough evidence to convict you or they look at you and say, you know what, you're off, there's nothing in your life that gives any sort of proof or evidence that you are actually, act as you say you are, a Christian? It's a very convicting question because honestly, we'll ask again here a little bit and it's kind of where James gets to today. If you don't know the book of James, to kind of recap where it's been going, James is writing to an audience that is facing severe persecution for being believers, because they're Christians and they're holding to their faith, because they believe what they believe, they're being persecuted, and it's not just affecting their, their mental health and whatever, it's actually affecting their financial income. Everything is being affected by their beliefs. You, you can relate, maybe not to that, but you can relate to this. If you've ever been through a hard time and you question, God, am I doing something wrong? Like, why are things just happening in my life the way they are? It makes you question sometimes, like, am I outside of God's will? Does God hate me? Or something wrong, and he writes this whole letter saying, listen, difficult times are a part of the Christian life. He starts with the first part, talking about, listen, if you're being persecuted, if you're going through difficult times, like, tests and trials are just a part of the Christian walk, and they're actually good for you. They develop you. They make you into something that Christ wants you to become. He says, but at the same time, like, be careful, because just because you're going through difficult times doesn't give you an athletic pass, if you will, just to start giving in to temptations, doing wrong stuff. And if you don't know how to get through it, he says, like, just open up the manual and read it. Follow God's word. He will tell you how to make through, get through this stuff. Just follow the manual. And, and then he begins to unpack several tests to talk about. And throughout the rest of the book we're looking at is, is your faith real or worthless? If you were to take a test right now, how would you tell? And he begins to give different tests. Last week, the first test we talked about is, how do you treat others? This week is one that we're probably familiar with is this, is what has your faith done? If last week was how do you treat others, that's one test you can take. The other test you can take is this, is well, what has your faith done? And the big idea you're going to get from this text is this, is that real faith leaves a trail of evidence. If your faith is real, there will be a trail of evidence that can and will convict you. This section, if you will, is the main thesis of James' book. And it's one that gives people heart palpitations sometimes. As a matter of fact, the great reformer Martin Luther, just I think in this section alone, came to point to question whether James should be a biblical book to be followed at all because it really challenges you to say, listen, faith without works is dead. If you're not doing stuff as a Christian believer, you're not a Christian believer, he says. And Martin Luther had such trouble with that that he 
had serious conversation, like, should we consider this a biblical text? Because it seems to fly in the face with what the gospel he understands. And, and so we will unpack more about that. So if you have your Bibles, that's a long intro, I'm sorry, but yeah, I feel like you need to understand it. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. So if you'll follow along, we'll answer and kind of address this question, like, what has your faith done? And so he says this. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith and you don't show it by your actions? Like, can that kind of faith save anyone? Like, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. Like, what good does that do? So see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show your faith if you don't have good deeds? Like, I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good for you. <laughs> Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Like, can't you say, see faith without good deeds is useless? Like, do you not remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scripture says. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous and because of his faith, like he was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Or take Rahab the prostitute as another example. Like, she was shown to be right with God for her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Like, just as the body is dead without breath or without the spirit, so also faith is dead without good works. Whew. Uh, we were talking just today in class about reading through James and how, man, it just is uh, punching the gut over and over. What is he talking about? He's asking the question, test number two, how do you tell if you're truly part of the faith? How can you tell if your faith is real? As you have to ask this question, what has your faith done? Like, what, what, what have you actually, actually done as a Christian? And you see the first part, he starts with verse 14. He asks us, what good is it, brothers, if you have faith but don't show it? He says, what kind of faith is that one right there? Like, what, what kind of faith is James talking about here? We see towards the very end, verse 26, he talks about a faith that does nothing, that bears no fruit. He's like, how can you say I have faith, but yet you have no evidence that shows for it? And he goes to this whole crux of saying, listen, faith without works is dead. Now, now there's a problem with this right here. Because if you read the other scriptures, and you should read all of the counsel of God's word together and say, well, what does it say all together? What does it say in context? How do you read this when you got other people of the faith who wrote books of the Bible named Paul that says literally the complete opposite, completely contradicts? I mean, almost verbatim, James is like, the faith without works is dead. And Paul's like, listen, faith, faith does not need works. You don't need to be obedient. You don't have to do this stuff. You are saved apart from the law. Well, like, let me read again like what he says in James chapter 2, verse 24. Look what he says. If you look down your text, he says, You see, you're shown right by God by what you do, not by faith alone. I think we may have it on the screen, but listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through 28. Keep your finger on that text and follow along what he says. He says, Can we boast then when we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law by our deeds. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law, not by what you do. 
In case you think this is a one-time thing, there's another one. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, listen to what he says. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, not by obedience, not by good works. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law. Listen, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law, by your good deeds. You see why Martin Luther had such heart palpitations with this, because Paul is a pivotal character of the Old Testament. I mean, wrote most of the books in the New Testament. Yet you have James, the very brother of Jesus, saying something, well, how do we marry these two when you lead these? And even more so, both Paul and James use Old Testament examples. James looks at Abraham and says, listen, I'm just going to prove to you it's always been this way. Look at Abraham. He said, Abraham, it's by his faith that was shown. Doesn't he say that in verse 21 through 23? It's by his actions that showed that his faith was real. It showed it. Paul does the same thing. Listen to Galatians chapter uh, 3. Listen to this. Chapter 3, verse 6, 9, and 11. We're going to break it up. Listen. It says, In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness because of faith. Verse 9 says, So all that put their faith in Christ Jesus share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Verse 11 says, So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. Now, some of you have lost me already. You're zoning out. Stick with me. Let me pull it back in. James is using an example of the Old Testament, a father figure that you'd go, man, look at that guy. That's who we should measure our life up to. And says, look, Abraham did it, and his, his actions proved his faith. Paul uses the same guy, and they seem to be contradicting each other. Which is it? I tell you, you're saved by grace, you're saved by faith, but yet then at the same time, James is saying you got to do stuff. It's important when you read Scripture, you read the whole counsel of Scripture, and you read in context what they're saying. Like, who is right? The word deeds in context of Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we talk about James. He's talking about deeds that earn salvation. James, when he's talking about deeds in context, he's talking about deeds as a result of salvation. Keep following along right here. Justify, when you're talking about justify in here, in other words, being made right, what makes you right, being justified, being considered just, Paul is talking about to declare righteous, as in the root of salvation. James is talking about demonstrating righteousness, the the fruit of salvation. Uh, This is the most easy way I love constable notes. Uh, A commentary consult says this. says, the tree shows its life by its fruits. But it was always alive before either fruits or even leaps uh, have appeared. He's like, it was always there, but, but that's what shows it. In other words, is this. Paul is talking about justification. James is talking about sanctification. In other words, you are saved by grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ, what he shed on the cross for your sins. There's nothing you can do to earn that salvation. And that's what saves you. That's what justifies makes you right. But, but sanctification is where you become more and more like Christ every day. And if you're, if you're truly saved, you will begin to look like Christ. And there will be fruit in your life. If there's no fruit, you have to ask, well, th- did this actually take place? But Paul's talking about pre-salvation. James is talking about post-salvation. I, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. I love, listen to this. He said, Paul and James do not stand face-to-face and, and fight each other against each other and contradict each other. 
Instead, they're, they're standing back to back, fighting opposite foes, working together in the same direction. James is sitting here going, listen, no, if you're saved, there's going to be fruit in your life. This is how you can tell. You should see this in your life. It's the evidence that comes out. And Paul's like, yes, what he said, but don't miss it. Just because you have that stuff doesn't make you saved. That's not what saves you. So don't try to do that stuff to earn salvation. They're speaking the same language, but coming from different angles. And so many of us get caught up on, well, I'm saved by grace, so it's all good. It doesn't matter what I do, but, but it does matter what you do. And that's what James is getting at. What you do matters. If you're truly saved, there, there's going to be evidence. It's going to prove it. And so, so James, throughout this, gives, gives three different arguments on why faith needs deeds. You see in verse 14 through 17, he gives a real-life example of just the impracticality, impracticality, is that a word? I just wrote it in my notes. Impracticality of how it is to say you have faith in deeds or or you don't have it, and it's like it doesn't make any sense. And he uses this hypothetical, or maybe it's a real-life situation, so suppose you have a brother that's starving and he has insufficient needs, stuff to survive the day, and he comes to you, and you look at him and go, man, God bless you, I love you. I can tell you're hungry and you're cold, so may the Lord bless you. May the Lord feed you. May the Lord give you warmth. See ya. Walk away. He's like, what good is that? Does that that give? Does that provide anything for it? No, he says, you've done nothing for it. It's like like the homeless man. We have a group that goes every Monday night down to Exchange Avenue Baptist Church and serves hot dogs to the homeless. They serve hot dogs, provide food and meals for people that can't provide for themselves and help them. Imagine if their ministry was solely this. They sat out there and said, let me pray for you. Come up, you're hungry. Lord, fill their stomach with food. See ya, good luck. Are you doing anything for them? Yeah, prayer is good, don't get me wrong, but you're not meeting their practical needs. He's like, just as your words are useless to them, your faith is that same kind of uselessness. It just is not working. It's just not practical. He uses a logical reason in verse 18 through 19. He said, now some of you may argue that you have faith, and others have good deeds. He's ultimately saying this, can you prove your faith without deeds? No. How do you know you have faith if you don't have deeds? I I don't. I think it's there. You can't actually prove it. He's saying there's no evidence, so you can never really know. It's like my little brother growing up. up. I remember talking to him, and he always said he he was really into dinosaurs. And he said he had an imaginary friend that was a dinosaur. As much as I talked to him about this, you know what? He can say all he wants. He can say he's seen it. He can say, but there's no evidence to prove it's actually there. My arm's still attacked. No T-Rex ate my arm off. There's not dinosaur droppings in the house. There's not, you know, holes in the wall where it's tail whipped. And it, there's no evidence. So how do you know you don't? He can see, believe in all he wants, but until you actually see something versus a real person that you can see, touch, feel, and see evidence... You can say you have faith, but there's no real evidence. You, you, you never really know. And he says in like verse 19, he says, some people might give a rebuttal, say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Like, I believe God, isn't that enough? It not that enough? Like, I don't have to prove anything to you. He's like, no, no, you don't. You don't have to prove anything to me. You can say you believe in God, but understand this, even demons say that. You, you say, I believe God, I believe, listen, even demons say that. Do you think they're saved? Like, think about this. Think about demons. Demons have better convictions about God than you do. If you don't know what demons are, demons are fallen angels that came and said, you know what, God, I don't want to follow your way. I'm going to do it my way. And when God cast them out of heaven, Satan and all his demons, his posse, a third of the angels, the scripture says, were cast out. 
They were cast out, and you see them out throughout Scripture, and you read about this. Understand that those demons that do not stand a chance, that have better convictions about God than you do. Think about this. They believe there is one true God. They believe that Scripture is God's Word. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe salvation is by grace through faith. They believe that Jesus died, was buried, raised, and paid for the sins of the world. They believe He is in heaven right now. They believe there's a literal heaven and hell. They even have to submit to His authority throughout Scripture. Does it make them saved? No. An intellectual faith will not save you. A simple belief in God will not save you. Because you've walked and said a prayer and said some statements will not save you. As Jesus clearly says, not everyone who cries me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but those who what? Do the will of my Father. You can't look at that and go, well, my faith, do you have confidence in my faith is equivalent to, to, to a demon's, and I feel good about that. You, you can't. I, if you do, we need to talk. It makes no sense. And so he said, logically, it, it doesn't make sense to say, I don't need faith. I just, I just, I don't need actions. I just simply believe. And many people say that. How dare you tell me I am or am not Christian? How dare you look at my life? That's none of your business. It is none of my business. I get. But as a loving brother in Christ or sister in Christ, I should be able to come to you and say, hey, listen, there's, there's something missing. You say you're a fruit tree, but yet there's no fruit. So he, so he uses real life example. He uses logical. Then he uses biblical evidence to support it. Look at verse 20 through 26. He says, look at the Old Testament. He goes, I'll prove to you that it's always been this way. This is not some new train of thought. And he uses Abraham as we just talked about. He says, look at Abraham. Look how he did it. Look at his life. What? He believed, and because of his belief, he went and tried to offer his son as God asked, as a sacrifice. In faith, he did it. He followed through, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It was evidenced by what he did. I ask this question, I say, well, why did he use Abraham? Then later he uses Rahab. He uses the hero of the faith, Abraham, who, who was the beginning of the uh, Israelite faith and stuff. And then you have Rahab, who was a prostitute that hid people in the town of Jericho. Well, why do you use such polar opposite things? I love what one commentary said. He said, everyone can find themselves between Abraham and Rahab. Everyone can think that, hey, I'm either high on the hog or I'm the worst of worst. Everyone can see themselves. He uses both. says, no matter who you are or where you fall, you see there's still evidence that shows up in people's life. And so he says, look, verse 22, he says, faith without actions, without works together is dead. His actions, I love what it says in verse 2, his actions made his faith complete is what it says. You see that his faith, verse 22, and his actions worked together. And his actions, what? Made his faith complete. I love, even verse 24 and through 25, there's a word that's used in there. He says this. It says that he would be, they were both shown to be right. They were not made right for what they did. They were shown. They were proven. It supports that James is still talking about the fruit. of. They weren't made right with what they did, but it was proven they were right by what they did. They put their money where their mouth is, and it showed up. Listen, too often we walk around believing I walked an aisle, said a prayer, and that's going to be enough for me. Understand, I, I can't, I will never tell you you're not saved for doing that. But at some point, it just from the scripture tells me there should be some evidence that should show up. And if there's not evidence in your life, there's not fruit that comes up, there's not something that your faith has done, I, I'm just telling you with complete confidence, you should be a little worried. I'd be worried. You have something that shows for it. And so you look at the application, what he's talking about here. Real faith leaves a trail of evidence. Understand this. Let me give you some quick things. What real faith is and real faith isn't. 
And it's important, I think, you process these. The first one, looking at verse 14 through 18, what he's talking about is this. Real faith can't be something you say. It, it, it can't just be something you say. You can't just go and say, hey, oh, bless their hearts. Let me pray for them. Let me say nice things. Let me articulate the right words. It can't be something you say. He's showing it here. Like, people who do this, their faith is useless because there's nothing to back it up. There's nothing to go and show that's going on. Warren Wearsby said this, that people with dead faith will substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and testimony and can even quote the right verse from the Bible. But their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think that their words are as good as works, and they are wrong. They're wrong. I, I think to equate this, uh, there's a guy I went to high school with, a guy named Royce Young, who is a beat writer for the Thunder. I mean, any time when the Thunder win their heyday, like if you saw on ESPN, Royce Young was the guy they were interviewing. He is the expert all thanks Thunder. They were, he was the guy they talked to. I went to high school with him. He's the expert. He's knowledgeable. He can tell you inside out. He can tell you stats. He can tell you defensive, offensive strategies. He can tell you what's going on. He can tell you injury reports. He can tell you everything. His knowledge is beyond anything I can imagine when it comes to that sort of stuff. Can I tell you something? It's funny to me because in high school, growing up, I knew him. We ran circles. He didn't play basketball. He was a baseball player. It's comical to me. I'm like, how are you doing this sort of stuff? Here's the thing. I'm not picking on him. Can you come and say he is a basketball player? He could tell you everything about it, but there's nothing in his life to give evidence that he's ever really been a basketball player, that he's done that before. He can articulate everything about it. And many of us as Christians are saying we know the Bible inside out. We come to church. We say this sort of stuff. We know the prayer. We know our testimony. But you know what? Just because you say all this stuff, you know what I think say does not make you a Christian. Grace will radically change you. And so real faith can't be something you say. Real faith also can't be something you think, believe, or feel. You can't think, I know everything. You can't believe just for something I feel. It's an emotion I have. I feel good about myself. It's none of those things. Demons feel something in that. Demons believe. They feel God's presence, and they shudder at his presence because they know who he is. Don't, don't mistake it. Like, like, let me ask you this. Would you equate your faith to demonic faith? More important question, would you be comfortable with that alone as your saving grace? I, I believe the same thing that Satan demon right there does. I feel pretty good about myself. You, you say, what's the difference between their faith and my faith? The difference is, there is, the difference is they, want, they have to submit our life. For us, we want to submit our life. Say, God, I'm giving it to you. I'm asking you to come save me. They don't want saving. They want to be their own God, do their own thing. They don't want to submit their life to him. Hey, it's like a chair. I'm, I'm a big boy, okay? I'm going to tell you right now. And I've come to learn with camping chairs, I have to look at the weight limit because sometimes that ends up badly for me if I don't. Now, now chairs, I can get it and I can hold it up and it says it has a certain weight limit. I, listen, I can say I trust that chair, I believe in that chair, I have faith in that chair, but when is it really going to show that I truly believe what that chair says? Is when I place my hiney in it and sit in it and prove that it can really hold this big boy's weight, right? That's when my faith is real. Reality is me, I was looking at the chair and say, oh yeah, I believe that, I have faith, I, can, I trust in that. You can feel all you want and believe all you want, but until you set your bottom in the chair and say, listen, this is, I, I trust it with my life. And, and many of us don't ever do that. See, see, real faith is not something you say. It's not something you, you think, you know, you believe, you feel. According to James, real faith is something you do. It's something you do. You see him all talking about, he uses the Old Testament examples. Like, look at these guys. How do you know their faith is real? They, they did it. 
They said, I believe in you, God. And he's like, listen, I want you to sacrifice son. Okay, I'll do it. And God had to stop him from doing it, from pulling the trigger on it. Rahab, who didn't grow up in the church, didn't know anything, just had heard rumors about their God. And when these people came looking for hiding, believed enough, says, I believe that they need help because I believe their God's real, and took a leap of faith and took a risk of herself. He says, because of her, man, you saw it in her life. Let me say it like this. When a person is saved by God, they will always prove it before others. You won't be ashamed. You won't be offended by that question. You won't be hurt by it. When a person is truly saved, they will always prove it before others. I don't know you're saved, but let me tell you. Peter says, hey, always be ready to give an argument for the, for the faith you have, why God is who he is, what he's done in your life. We read that today in 1 Peter 3. Like, always be ready to give a testimony to that. No, he's real. There will always be evidence of it. Warren Wiersbe, I said, I think said along this line, I think it's real powerful, he said this, beware of mere intellectual faith. Beware of a mere intellectual faith. You see, no man could come across Christ by faith and remain the same way any more than he can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. It's going to affect you. You touch a wire like that, listen, you're going to make noise. You're going to do something that shows that something's happened. I know growing up, we used to do, had a lot of remodeling in the house, and at one point, uh, we would forgot to put the switch plates on the lights. I go around the corner, turn on the lights, and I put my finger and I scream across. Everyone heard what's going on. Everyone knew exactly what happened. There was no hiding. Eric just touched an electrical wire. We need to cover that bad boy up. I, I couldn't fake it. Everyone knows. When you come to Christ with contact with the risen Savior, you come to contrast, contact with true grace. Listen, there, there's something that radically changes in your life. Now, now some of you are sitting in fear like, I don't know if I've had it. Listen, you're not perfect. That's what sanctification is. You continue to work, continue to work out the salvation in your life. You are a new creation in Christ, and there should be a hunger to want to be different. There should be a hunger to want to be more like Christ. The reality is many of us don't have that. You see, listen, real faith leaves a trail of evidence. And that's what James is getting at. You, you will see. And so I come back to this question to ask you again. Listen, honestly, assess yourself. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Here's something for you to process even further along those lines. Keep that in mind. Like, what evidence would be presented? Your Honor, I have this evidence right here to show that Eric Harris, look, right here, he, he did this. I can tell you right now, I saw that. Who would be the eyewitnesses called to give an account for what they saw? My kids someday, when they grow up and talk to their grandkids or their kids, my grandkids, will they talk about their father and say, you know, I saw my dad live out his faith, or all he ever did is talk about it. You know, I never saw him read his Bible. I never saw him show love to people. I never saw him serve. I never saw him care. I never saw him take leaps of faith. Would my own kids even be eyewitnesses to what happened? Like, your, your faith will leave a trail. So much so that Paul, Paul, who we just talked about earlier, said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5. He said, examine yourself, or, or some translations say, test yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. He says, surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you failed the test of genuine faith. And, and so James is gut-wrenching because it looks at you and sucks you right at something and says, if I have to look at my life, what would my honest answer be? Is there enough evidence to demand a verdict? Would it be a hung jury? 
Would they dismiss me before we even get to trial? Because you know what? There's nothing in his life that shows he belongs to Christ. I'll never stand here and tell you because you don't do this, this, and this, you're not saved. But I'll tell you with certain certainty, you see those things? Scripture talks about there's certain questions of whether or not you have experienced the grace and love of Jesus Christ. So as believers, it calls us to a new level of understanding. Say, hey, I just can't simply have lip service Christianity. There's something that should happen in my life. And so, I, the challenge is this, is what do you do with this information? Well, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to dig into God's word and say, God, how can you transform my life and do something with this? Maybe some of you need a question and say, God, I need to ask this, am I truly saved? Have I really given myself to you? I'm not here to make you question your salvation or make you get saved again. That's not a thing. You can't get, you can't get do something bad enough to lose your salvation. We don't believe that here. We, you, you are saved. That's it. But did you ever really give your life to Christ and say, listen, take all of me? Or do you walk an aisle, say a prayer, because that's what you're supposed to do. And you check that box, and you can get that ticket punched. And maybe someday when you stand before the gates, you can give them the ticket. Say, I remember saying this. Salvation will change you. And so my challenge and plea is the van comes up, and they're going to lead us in songs just to time responses to respond. How is God leading you right now? Some of you, I told you at the beginning, you may need to come to a point and say, you know what, I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you might need affirmation. Hey, you know what, I'm not sure, but I'm going to recommit my life to the Lord. I'm not getting resaved, but I'm going to say, God, I've gotten off track, but today I'm going to start living for you. Today, I repent. I'm going to, rededication, I'll tell you, is a fancy word for repenting. It's the same thing. It's saying, God, I repent. I'm so sorry. Last five years of my life, I don't know where I've been, but today, listen, I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. I'm all yours. Maybe you've been living your faith, but you need, you need to live it more. I challenge you to be faithful wherever God's leading you. And so as I pray, I'm going to ask you to respond however you want, however God's leading you. We'll have elders and their wives available. We'll have, uh, I think, maybe J.D. and Amy available. Bradley and Farrell will be available, and, and Pete will be available somewhere as well. Our elders would love to pray with you if that, that would help you. But I'm just asking you to respond. So would you pray with me? Father God, I, I love you so much. And God, these are heavy words. I was so convicted this week, and God, even this week, I feel like I've failed so much. God, I thank you for loving me despite my weaknesses, despite my mistakes. You called me to a higher standard, but you graded me on a curve because of what you've done on the cross for my sins, and I thank you for that. God, help me to look at my own life right now, even as a pastor of this church, just because I preach. God, help me understand that doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I should be doing. Stirring my heart to start living for you, God. God, help me personally, please, to move my faith from lip service to action to do something. God, I pray that others like me in this room would just learn just to follow suit with what you're stirring in our heart. God, I pray for those in the sound of my voice that are not sure. God, I pray they'd come ask. I pray they'd leave today with confidence. God, help them understand my heart's desire not for them to question their salvation, to doubt their salvation. But God, I, I just pray that they just learn to constantly test their salvation to see if it sticks, to see if that seed has really taken root in their life. God, I pray we'd be a people known by you. People look at our life and not see us, they'd see Christ. I love you so much, and I know you want to stir in our heart. I know that you want people to respond. I pray you'd be faithful to that. So God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we sing...
As we sing at Bradley and Farrah, there's a couple of our elders and his wife would be more than happy to come pray with you. You have J.D. and Amy. We'd love nothing more. And uh, I'll be available in the back as well. But I encourage you to respond kind. But would you stand? Let's worship. And if you need to come talk to one of us, please come and talk to us. Without hope 